Welcome to Planning Unplugged, a podcast series from planning lawyers at Womble Bond Dickinson. We operate in an ever-changing world of law and policy, so we're here to provide you with the latest insight and a point of view like no other. Hi everybody, my name is Kate Ashworth. I am a lawyer in the planning team at Womble Bond Dickinson. I'm joined today by my colleagues James Clark and Helen Robinson. Hi, Hi Kate. Together, we have over 30 years experience working with developers across the UK. Sounds like a long time. And today, our first podcast in a series of three about biodiversity net gain. It's something we're all particularly interested in. Lots of people are talking about it. It's a term people have probably heard banded around. But what actually is biodiversity net gain? Well, trying to be succinct and put it in a, in a sentence, it's essentially a series of habitat creations and enhancements that, that should leave land in a better state for wildlife than it was before development started. It's really essentially the government's way of contributing to nature recovery whilst developing land. And as you said, Kate, although we've all got, you know, 30 years of experience between us, it's with planning, nothing stays still. There's always new stuff to learn, and this is very much on the horizon. And I think there is a very, very much an, an industry-wide sense of getting to grips with what this is and how developers uh, and the wider industry are going to respond to it. So apart from keeping us on our toes, which we know the government likes to do, why now? Why have they brought in this change? I think there's quite a few things, Kate, that have prompted the change, not least the climate emergency that we're all ha having to deal with and think about. And I think there's a very urgent need to do something to protect species and their habitats. I think we're going to look back and find that BNG will be a really key moment on our way to becoming a nature positive nation. I think that's right. I mean, I think a lot of it, I mean, it is also led by public opinion as, as well, because I think there is an increasing awareness. There's an increasing awareness of how nature depleted we are as a country, how a lot of our key habitats are in a poor condition. And, and we've, we've seen it even recently with, with things like, um, you know, sewage discharges into, into waterways or into coastal waters and, and the outcry that has prompted. So I think it very much feeds into that, that narrative of a, a sense of we need to do better. And this is a way, perhaps if it's successful, of achieving that and making the, sort of the natural environment better than it has been for many years. I don't think I'd quite realised until I started doing some reading around it how poor the state of biodiversity in the UK is. I that's really yeah. interesting. Who's going to be affected by this change? I think that is going to be absolutely anybody that wants to develop land and right across the board from a landowner who's approached to have their land developed, a developer who has proposals in mind and also the local planning authority who will be responsible for making a determination on those proposals. There's going to be very few exceptions in reality. There's all different things for all of those people to think about. I think from a landowner perspective, any landowner who has sufficient land to potentially be useful should be thinking about it now, both from a personal perspective, but also a commercial perspective, because it's likely that they will be approached by, by those developers who have insufficient land to be able to deliver the net gain that they're required to. But also from a development point of view, there is going to have to be that forethought by developers about what their site is. Is there sufficient room on that site for on-site delivery? If there isn't, they're going to need off-site delivery and land on which to put that net gain. I think I'd say that ecologists are going to be very busy uh, when this comes in. <laughs> yes. I think this, yes. uh, it's, it's 
that's certainly a good time for, for to be an ecologist. But I think as well, there's also an in- interesting offshoot, which is which sort of some some charities that operate in this space. So many many charities will have land, um, and they'll be involved in things like conservation of that land. And it's it's an interesting opportunity for them because there's possibly a means for them to acquire funding through the sale of biodiversity units for their charitable objectives. But it will be it'll be an interesting consideration for them because, of course, that will be facilitating development elsewhere. So I suppose they'll need to balance those sort of sort of competing objectives, if you like, of, of how they manage those things. So I know certainly from talking to some clients, that is a real consideration for them right now. There's the opportunity to get additional funding through the, from developers for the things that they are already doing and things that they want to do on land that they already have. But it's marrying that with the sort of perception then of being facilitating development and when that, whether that aligns with their charitable purposes. I think that's a lot to think about and it sounds like it's going to impact, well, it's really anyone working in the, the development sector, anyone wanting to deliver development or, or anyone who is involved in any sort of sense, I guess. In terms of the, the changes, talked about biodiversity net gain, there is already some policy requirements and it's a term that's been around for a while, but what we're talking about today is a mandatory requirement, isn't it? So this is something that's going to be introduced in January 2024 and that's when it will kick in. James, can you tell me a bit about the difference between this mandatory gain that we're talking about and then the policy requirements that we're seeing currently? Yeah, of course. So the mandatory net gain that we've been talking about, as you say, comes into force in January. It's been delayed once, but as far as we know, the January date is now fixed. For minor developments, it will still be April. That was always the intention. And as far as we're aware, the April date still holds good. And for nationally significant infrastructure projects, my understanding is that is still 2025. November is the date that I've got in my head. Correct me if, if I'm wrong. On the policy side of things, many local authorities actually already have policies that require a biodiversity net gain, although it's patchy, so not it's not consistent across the country. Some authorities have said how much they want and, and specified a percentage for the net gain that we've been talking about on, on a national level, at a statutory level, the government is targeting 10%. Some authorities already match that, but some authorities just simply say they require development to secure a net gain. So they don't actually say by how much, as long as it's on the positive side of the equation. The difference for developers really is that when you're dealing with a local policy requirement, that BNG requirement would just sit alongside other local policy requirements, affordable housing, infrastructure that's required. And of course, it's then weighed in the balance like other policies are. So it may be the case that other issues such as viability or site constraints or whatever it might be, there could be other material considerations that might outweigh the BNG requirement at a local level or or require it to be applied sort of less stringently. However, once we move to a statutory biodiversity net gain, it will be fixed. It will be a statutory requirement. It will not sit as a policy requirement. It will just be a mandatory provision that developers will have to meet. And I suppose that narrows the pool then down of what gives way when you can't, because it's not viable, deliver certain things on site. That pool shrinks and it might be that affordable housing or other things could take a hit. Yeah, it's quite an interesting way of doing it, isn't it? I think, you know, we're used to having requirements in in planning terms, but really most of them are policy requirements. I think it's the first time a condition like this has been imposed on every single planning permission that is to be granted in in England other than potentially time limits but even then there's some scope isn't there I think yeah. that's right the only thing I think I think it's a little bit similar to is community infrastructure levy and although mm. that's slightly different because there's an element of an authority has to take it forward through a charging schedule mm. but once it has been it then sits as that mandatory requirement at a, at a statutory level and, and isn't negotiable in that way so I think it's a little bit analogous to, to SIL and then as I say it narrows down the pool of where the horse trading can take place really because you're essentially ring fencing these these certain requirements 
do you think this is going to achieve the goals the government are hoping for? From a positive point of view and trying to be as positive as we can be at the moment without any guidance, I think it's only going to achieve those outcomes if people and relevant bodies work together, but not only work together, but work together in a meaningful way and be as collaborative as possible. And then hopefully we'll have some detailed regulations soon and that will help in addition to the work that's being done already. And all of that is working towards all of this being as successful as it can be. I've sort of heard things like the 10% is just a trial run as it were and in time it might be increased to about 25% uh, which I think is quite interesting so yeah I do wonder if if this initial 10% will achieve the outcomes the government are hoping for but I think they have to start somewhere and I think 10% seems like a reasonable figure. I think I'm aware that some authorities are actually looking at a, a higher percentage than, yeah. than 10% yeah. I think that's that's a minimum so it'll be interesting to see whether from the outset any authorities will be bold and go mm. for a higher amount mm. or whether there'll just be this sort of incremental sort of increase once this um, sort of establishes mm. itself. No I was just going to say I've seen one authority very recently who are in the early stages of producing a new local plan just go straight in for 25 so whether they'll settle at 25 or whether that's their initial thoughts and then seeing what happens from January it'd be really interesting to see and also where they want that BNG delivered because my experience of local planning authorities so far is that while they have specific requirements in policy for what they want to be delivered when you come down to trying to find out where they want that to be delivered it's not always as easy to to be able to identify exactly where in that area they want the BNG to be delivered. I think that's right it's slightly also misleading in a sense because when you talk about even a 10% net gain on a development that removes all of the biodiversity value of that particular site through the development that's carried out, effectively what you need is 110% because you've got to get back up to your pre-development value yeah. and then add 10%. So the reference to 25, that's a significant change, isn't it, for, for that particular area. And I just wonder whether, whilst developers, I think, will be on the front foot because development is their business and therefore they need to get to grips with this quickly, I do wonder whether there is a there will be a lag from the particularly for the off-site measures where mm. perhaps landowners may take some time may want to see how quite literally how the land lies to see whether this is something that they want to potentially burden yeah. their land with and I, but i think for developers they may have to rely upon their own efforts either to provide the biodiversity net gain on site or for themselves to source the off-site location rather than relying upon a third-party provider. There is, of course, the option of statutory credits for, for the statutory version of net gain. But those, I think when they published those, the, I think there was perhaps a bit of people were surprised at the, uh, the cost of some of the, the BNG, yeah. the, the statutory yeah. credits. They're, they're phenomenally expensive, potentially, if you've got to rely just on those to deliver your, your net gain. What do you think, then, developers should be doing in preparation for this, this event in January? What do they need to be doing? Well, I suppose I would say, firstly, as we touched on, assume it will be January. We've had one delay. The delay was to allow for the guidance and regulations to be published. And as we're recording this in November, we don't yet have that guidance or regulations. But hopefully those things will be available when we are doing our subsequent podcasts and we'll be able to talk about them in, in more detail. So assume January will take place. We said as well, it's a good time to be an ecologist. So I think early discussions with an ecologist in terms of site selection, in terms of how the BNG will be provided I think is a really key thing it can't be an afterthought I think you'll get into trouble if you try to bolt it on afterwards and then I would say be very careful about making assumptions about sites and about their biodiversity value I think contrary to some perceptions a brownfield site or a post-industrial site in a city centre can actually have a much higher biodiversity value than you might expect particularly if it's laying dormant for a, for a long period of time so again 
talk to your ecologist and do it early. Yeah, I think I've heard something interesting that was about insects. There's so many insects on these brownfield sites. Is that right? That actually they are creating these really high value habitats, which I thought was fascinating. I think as well, it's really key to look ahead to when developers are looking to put in their planning applications because I think given that we're now in November there's likely to be a large backlog of applications once we get to January and it becomes a mandatory requirement so I think to all developers who are looking to submit schemes whether in the near future or in the spring it's really thinking about how you're proposing to deliver the BNG what will be expected by the local planning authority on top of the statutory requirement and and just trying to focus on that now. I think a lot of developers that we've spoken to as well seem to be really focused on off-site habitat creation. And I think they just need to be mindful that a lot of local planning authorities are going to push very strongly for on-site delivery. Um, And it's trying to factor that in and be almost as creative as possible where there is a constrained site that they can at least show that they have considered on-site delivery and where it's not feasible that they've gone through that process and that assessment process in a really meaningful way so they can actually show their story to a local planning authority to actually rule out why it's not possible and also I think local planning authorities need to be really clear on where they want their BNG to go so do they have sites in mind do they have council owned sites in mind do they they have key sites that have already been assigned in a local plan that are key sites for the delivery of off-site BNG and if they don't or it's not clear from their current local planning policies early engagement with them in terms of having those discussions so there isn't a delay once those applications go in and they haven't actually thought about sites at that point. I was just going to really echo what you just said there Helen because I think it's it's easy to forget that there is a hierarchy in in how BNG is provided. Yes. You start with on-site and then you go to off-site and then then you look to statutory credits under for the statutory biodiversity net gain and so to work your way through that process will be important to show that you have considered it or how you've considered it and I think that some developers might be tempted just to think that they can sort of outsource their their BNG requirements and that they might find then they get into difficulty when their application is going through the decision making process. The big thing for me is that they need to be really aware of sort of wherever they're looking to develop in the country what that particular local planning authority what their requirement in policy is at the moment because it's likely to be that in addition to the statutory requirement in January and it's kind of erring on the side of caution not just providing the statutory requirement it's also having regard to what those local planning policies say especially where there are emerging policies in certain areas and it's trying to factor that in at the earliest possible stage of a development before you're even getting to the point where you're discussing what you're proposing to do with a local planning authority it's factoring in on a worst case can you deliver off-site if you can't then you need to be able to show a local authority where you're then proposing that off-site delivery i think that's absolutely right i think that early engagement with an ecologist at even you know the site selection stage will be crucial because ultimately if you pick the wrong site at the outset it's going to be very difficult to mm. to, to sort of develop that under the new regime when it when it comes in or certainly very expensive to develop it i think that the other thing to to be careful of is the due diligence process when acquiring sites um, developers just need to be very careful about the anti-avoidance measures in the environment act what are they so there are measures that are built into the environment act what that says is that if if anything is done on land after the 30th of january 20 
20, so it's the date's already passed, there's not a case of being able to beat it. If anything's been done on land that, that wasn't under a planning permission, the authority can then take biodiversity value of the site before that intervention as pre-development biodiversity value for that site. So I guess sort of translated, what that means then is for developers, they need to be really quite careful about the sites that they are selecting and, and acquiring for development because if they're not clear about what's happened on that site and they believe the biodiversity value is this number, as it were, and it transpires that the landowner has purposefully undertaken a certain acts that have affected that biodiversity value, the developer could find themselves in a very, very different situation. I think it does raise some interesting questions, though, about how an authority would know what the biodiversity value of that site was before the intervention happened. But I seem to recall, Kate, you'd been to, to a conference recently and you talked about some of the technology that might be sort of out there that might be assisting on, on determining biodiversity values. And I wondered, actually, when I was reading about the anti-avoidance measures, whether there are technological solutions that authorities might deploy to try and help them in that if they did have to you know, determine a, a value for biodiversity of a site. I recently did go to to a seminar and it was really fascinating they're using satellite imaging of the site so they can look back and so I think that will be a thing that use of technology so yeah de definitely not one that can be you can't just assume that a local authority won't know because actually I think they, mm. they're equipped for that um, which is really interesting I think one of the things that I've been thinking about and I think is one of the crucial things is this 30-year period and it's not really just 30 years is it it's 30 years from commencement of development so that could be actually quite a long time after you started designing your site and being granted planning permission so it, it's actually a longer period and, and that's the period of time in which this especially for off-site habitat creation needs to be in place and 30 years is longer than the lifetime of, of quite a lot of developments so you might have put this habitat in place for a type of development which then actually is knocked down and something else is created but in the meantime there's still that that obligation that lasts for a really long period of time so I think that's something that needs to be factored into the costs of any development and the design particularly where it's on site and how that's going to be managed going forwards. I think that's exactly right. I think developers do need to plan for that stage because I think it's tempting to put a lot of effort into ensuring that there's an adequate biodiversity gain plan at the beginning of the process because under the statutory regime, it will be a recommencement condition of every planning permission that you have to submit a biodiversity gain plan to the local planning authority for approval before you commence. So I think that the developer focus will be that part. But of course, a key plank of that plan really is the maintenance and the, and the local planning authority will want to ensure that there are adequate arrangements for maintaining the habitat and if that's on site it's sort of how how the developer is then going to extract itself from the site and effectively move on to the next project well, what's it going to leave behind in terms of a management company structure how is that structure to be funded to make sure it can do the things that it needs to do um, in order to ensure that those habitat enhancements do the job they're intended to do there's also opportunities though um, I think for developers I mean one, one thing I found of real interest in the guidance was where if a developer creates more biodiversity units on site than is needed to meet the biodiversity net gain requirement, then the developer can register those units on the council's biodiversity gain register yeah. and those units can then be either used by that developer elsewhere or potentially traded to others. So it's it's an interesting scheme that's being set up. Incentives within there are quite interesting as well and it'll be how the, not just the physical landscape, but the development landscape as it were, how that changes in response to BNG, I think will be really interesting to see. Yeah. 
particularly if you, you could end up with a, a site which really lends itself to a particular habitat and you can actually achieve some pretty impressive gains. And then as, as we talked about previously, you may have somewhere achieving that 110% is actually really difficult. I think I'll wrap it up. Can I get your top three takeaways on biodiversity net gain? I can cheat. I can go first. I think people should be embedding biodiversity net gain into everyday practice. I think they need to start building it in now. It's not going anywhere. So every time a site's found, it needs to be one of the first things that's looked at in terms of the baseline of the biodiversity, what's going to be lost potentially, and, and what that gain needs to involve. It's the three C's from me. I think to make BNG a success, it's vital that we have good communication, good collaboration and good cooperation between both landowners, developers and local planning authorities. And it's a really important part of that process of making it a success and being clear on what's required and how it's going to be delivered. And I think for me, we know that local planning authorities are stretched, they have limited resources. And, and I think early engagement with them on, on biodiversity net gains is going to be really important because trying to make sure that your application is in, in a form that they can deal with as, as quickly as possible, I think is going to help. And just to try and understand, just touching back on what we, we talked about earlier, how any local policy requirement on BNG is going to interact with the statutory requirements. So getting a, getting a sense of how to work through that by early engaging early with the authority, I think will be a a very sensible move for a developer. So there you have it. Basically, if you want to buy land, you need to check that no one's moved any newts uh, recently. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs>